Because if if mate choice were a non-compensatory process and women chose based on height, then there'd be a few tall guys that are mating with everybody and the rest of the men would be twiddling their thumbs in sexual frustration. That's not what happens, right? And that's good news because it says what? Your height you can't change, but your ambition you can change. Not playing video games for eight hours in your basement while you let go of personal hygiene, you can change. Looking presentable, you could change. Improving yourself and having a better vocabulary and being better educated, you can change. So there is a whole slew of attributes. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Hafiz, and welcome back to another amazing episode. Guys, you know, one of my goals has always been to be able to sit down with all the great heroes who have inspired me so much throughout the years. You guys know, you know, I was in tears when I was able to talk to Dr. Jordan B. Peterson for the first time, and I've been blessed by being able to talk to some of the brightest minds who I currently see leading the culture forward in the 21st century. And this next up and coming individual who's going to join the show is literally on that Mount Rushmore of intellectual giants who have really inspired, encouraged, and educated me from afar to be able to have the wisdom and knowledge to be able to build a productive and healthy life. So guys, I know you guys are going to be blessed by this man's wisdom as much as I've been blessed throughout the years. So please, without further ado, welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. God Saad. Oh, it is. Wow. There's nothing I can say now that can live up to such a lovely uh, introduction. Thank you so much for your kind words. It's a delight to be with you. No problem. No problem. No problem. So, um, you know, I, I've been following your work for quite a long time, and so I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much. I would definitely want the people to be able to hear from your wisdom. So, you know, um, Doctor Godsod. Um, so, for the people who don't know who you are, can you share a bit of an elevated pitch of who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff? Sure. So, I'm a professor for the past. I'm I'm scared to say 29 years. I became a professor in 1994 as a young, uh, just had just finished my PhD. Uh, my scientific career is really marrying uh, three different fields. Uh, evolutionary psychology, which is the study of the evolutionary mechanisms that lead to, the, to why our minds are the way that they are. Why do we experience jealousy the way that we experience? Why do we love a particular type of mate when we're looking for an ideal mate? So in the same way that you could study why we have opposable thumbs, we can also study what are the evolutionary forces that caused our minds to be the way they are. And so I apply evolutionary psychology, so which comes from evolutionary biology, to the study of consumer behavior. But I define consumer behavior very broadly. It's not just that we consume Coca-Cola and Starbucks. We consume friendships. We consume religion. We consume popular culture. Everything is a consumatory experience. So that's really my scientific career, which led me to eventually found, sorry about the, um, I apologize for the, uh, the dings, hopefully they'll stop shortly, uh, mm -hmm. which led me to the founding of the field of evolutionary uh, consumption, which is, as I said, is the application of evolutionary biology to consumer behavior. So my first few books were in that area. Uh, 
But then uh, a few years ago, uh, my fourth book came out, which uh, is titled The Parasitic Mind. And there I'm putting on a slightly different hat. Yes, I'm still applying my training, uh, my scientific training to analyze problems. But in that case, I'm analyzing a particular uh, phenomena, a set of phenomena, which is why is it that humans can behave so irrationally? Why can, why do they uh, succumb to such uh, parasitic ideas? And so in that book, what I do is I argue that in the same way that animals can be parasitized by brain worms, actual literal brain worms, human beings can be parasitized by what I call idea pathogens. These are dreadful ideas that, in a sense, zombify us into thinking irrationally, thinking incorrectly in a disordered manner. And so that was my last book. And then the next book that will be forthcoming in uh, in July is actually the opposite of negative mindsets. It is how can we have certain positive mindsets that can hopefully lead us to happiness and to the good life, which of course many people have written about, but I think what is unique about my take, well, number one, my unique scientific background, but also my my lived experiences, right? I come from a very difficult childhood Lebanese civil war. We were Lebanese Jews who escaped the Middle East. It's not very healthy to be Jewish in many parts of the Middle East. And so coming from such a background, yet I still always am smiling. I always seem to be jovial. And so a lot of people would write to me and say, how you have an infectious love for life, explain it to us. And so that led me down the path of sort of the self-help area, which I never thought that I would write such a book. And so that gives you a bit of a broad overview of some of the things that have kept me busy over the past few years. No, I love it. I love it because it's funny because I've, you know, I've seen your work for probably a good, maybe a little under a decade of my life. And similar to what you're communicating, I've, I've seen the, the growth, you know, I've seen the different types of content that, that you've been creating. So my question is, if you could only talk about one subject matter of all that you've ever talked about for the rest wow. of your life, starting <laughs> tomorrow, what would that be? Wow, that's such a tough question because I'm I'm passionate about so many things. So you're 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 really putting the gun to my head, so to speak. Uh, probably the importance of developing proper critical thinking, uh, because from that, if if you don't start with that, then everything else that I'm passionate about, the, the science, the scientific method, then you couldn't pursue that. So, and that's why, in a sense, my last book uh, resonated with so many people, because. You know, you would think that we've gone through the enlightenment. You would think that we've gone through the scientific revolution. And yet human minds are so easily swayed by BS, by false quackery, by stupidity, by imbecility, by alluring ideas that are, uh, that are otherwise false. And so if I had to spend my time doing nothing but talking about one thing, it, we, it would be about how do we develop a mental hygiene to think as rationally as possible. No, this is really good. Um, uh, I love that we're getting here because I thought we we're gonna get here later, but we're here right now. So I wanna stay here. Sure. Um, one of the things that I admire so much about you, Dr. Peterson, um, Dr. David Buss, and as well as also my close friend who recently became a doctor, Dr. Rob Henderson, is especially those in the evolution psychology field is the is a robust 
discipline of the robust, the robust discipline of being academic. Um, I think sometimes we live in this kind of neo-Marx. We have this neo-Marxist culture where we want to tear down all our institutions and we want to poke holes and say what's wrong with them when there's plenty of holes and issues wrong with them. But these institutions also help create some of the best and brightest minds and be able to give them a, rig a rigorous structure to be able to create their, 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 their robust ideas. But whereas there's people like you who have all this wisdom and intelligence who have been, you know, instructed in the healthiest forms of academia, in, you know, in the early, early 20th century, I mean, late 20th century, you now in today's generation, you have all these fake pseudo psychologists and pseudo evolutionary biologists and, and these individuals who are now trying to teach some of the ideas that you may be teaching, but then using their own warped, twisted, you know, bent on these ideas. And then what, unfortunately, what I've realized is people can't tell the difference, right. right? We live in an era where the currency of today's world is, is attention. So, so they're seeing somebody with a TikTok with a million views or hundreds of thousands of, of followers on YouTube and they're believing, wow, that person is sharing so many great, profound ideas, but but they're not able to critically analyze those ideas. And they and they think a person like that, who's this pseudo scientist and, and, and pseudo content creator, is equivalent to a and a pristine doctor such as yourself. And so, my question is: Have you been noticing that occur, especially? of recent when you have all these individuals who are now trying to expose, I mean, present themselves as experts when they don't have the credentials or even the academic rigor to be able to make those claims? Well, I guess that your question speaks to the democratization of all these platforms, right? When I first started going on social media and on online world, uh, you know, I was one of the early folks who was doing, as you are now, and you're doing it very successfully, a long form podcast. But now everybody and their mother has a podcast. Everybody and their mother has an opinion. So there's, as in most things in life, there are two sides to the coin, right? So on the one hand, these platforms are wonderful in that they, they do democratize knowledge. But on the downside is everybody becomes, as you said, a pseudo expert. Uh, just like in social media, social media has wonderful uh, opportunities that it affords us. I have connected with people that our worlds would have otherwise never intersected. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick side story. Uh, my favorite genre of music is what's called the Philly sound, which is a, a type of soul music from the late 60s and early 70s. I, I was a very young kid, and at the time I was growing up in Lebanon. But even till today, that's the, the kind of soul music that I enjoy very much. My favorite group of that genre is a group called the Stylistics. The lead singer of the Stylistics, who has been singing in my ears when I was a, a child, eventually became a friend of mine. He's come on my show. I visited him in, in, in Philadelphia. He took me on a tour of you know the neighborhood in Philadelphia. In what world would a Lebanese-Canadian academic meet his musical childhood hero of, of the Stylistics? Well, that came through... Uh, the 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 affordances of social media. On the other hand, of course, there's a negative side to social media, which is all the hate that you receive, the anonymity that people are afforded, which where they can hurl stuff at you. So, 
I think life is always sort of in the gray. There are positives and negatives to anything. Uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, and I guess that speaks to the earlier point when you said if there was one thing that you had to talk, you had to talk about for the rest of your life, what would it be? And I said it would be to, uh, uh, you know, empower people to engage in proper critical thinking. Well, and the answer to that question speaks to your last point, which is if you have critical thinking, you'll be able to differentiate the quackery and the real guy. You'll be able to know that David Buss, when he speaks, is somebody that you should be paying attention to. And the pseudo intellectual quack on TikTok is probably somebody that you should avoid. And hence, you know, everything starts with that prefrontal cortex. That's what makes us human is our capacity to engage in higher order cognition. And so I go back to my earlier point, critical thinking and reason is everything. So for individuals who are like, man, I don't know, or I may not have the best critical thinking or reasoning skills, being an individual who would be passionate about it, if there was one piece of, you know, adv uh, of, of advice you would give the individual to be able to hone in on those skills, to be a better critical thinker, what would you tell that individual? That's great. I mean, th there isn't a, a singular, uh, you know, it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, what do I need to, to do to be healthy? Well, I would say, hopefully be at the right yes. weight, hopefully exercise, hopefully don't eat bats. So it's, it's really a multi-pronged uh, approach. So I don't think there is a singular one, but if I try to think off the top, the one off the top of my head, and that would be is to develop the, the rigor of scientific thinking, even though you yourself are not a scientist, right? So what does the scientific method allow us to do? Well, the scientific method says, okay, if I have a hypothesis about something, well, what would be the data that I would need to collect to test that hypothesis? And then, so now I go out, I collect that data, I analyze that data, and then I can decide whether, you know, the hypothesis holds true or is refuted, right? So I don't have to be emotional. I don't have to be hysterical. I don't have to rely on the opinions of others in adjudicating whether something is true or not. I just, uh, I put on my hat as a scientist, even when I'm not working as a scientist, and I saw this. And let me let me give you a, a great example of, of what I just said. This is something actually from my next book. So I, I won't give away the whole story, but at one point I lost this this wedding ring that I'm wearing right here. I lost it and through a miracle, I found out where I lost it. It was laying at the bottom, what well, we thought at the, and it turned out to be eventually true. I had gone swimming at my parents, at my in-laws's, my, my wife's parents' chalet, and they, they have a chalet on a fast-flowing uh, river. And while I was swimming, uh, you know, it fell off. And so my wife and I had gone back up there to see to, to gauge what what would happen to a ring that falls with the current take it away or with the gravity pull it faster. So we actually constructed an experiment, a, a, wow. a hydraulic experiment where we brought a ring that was roughly the weight of the, the current ring tied to a string, dropped it to see is the current too fast and therefore there is zero chance for us to find the ring. Well, what did I just describe? I just described a scientific experiment, right? Yeah. And so guess what? The ring is on, it's the same ring. It's that ring. Well, had, I, had we not thought using critical thinking via the scientific method, that ring had zero chance of ever being found. So, so there are a sort, 
a, a set of steps that you can use in your day-to-day -day life that can help you be a better thinker. C can I answer in a more long-winded way or do, do you want to interject and I can go on? It's up to you. No, keep on going. Okay. So this is now a slightly more elaborate way to become a better thinker. So in chapter seven of The Parasitic Mind, I talk about how to seek truth, which speaks to your general question of how, how do you develop better critical thinking abilities? And so in that chapter, I argue that the way you seek truth is, and forgive me, it's going to be a mouthful, but I'll break it down. I'll explain the whole thing. You, 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 you become a, you seek truth by building nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So what does that mean? Let's suppose I wanted to prove to you that toy preferences are not uh, a social construction. In other words, little boys prefer to play with trucks and little girls prefer to play with dolls, not because mommy and daddy are sexist pigs who teach us these arbitrary gender roles, but rather because there's something universal, something invariant, something biological about these sex-specific toy preferences. How would I go about convincing you of that? So I'm going to now build you a nomological network of cumulative evidence, which basically means what? I'm going to get you distinct lines of evidence coming from across cultures, across time periods, across species, across disciplines, all of which triangulate to demonstrating that my argument is the correct one. And so I won't build the entire network, but I'll give you some examples. So I can get you data from developmental psychology. Developmental psychologists are the folks who study how children's cognitive abilities develop. So I can get you data from developmental psychology that shows that children who are too young to be socialized, so by definition, they couldn't have learned those preferences, they already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences, right? Because I can get you children who are three months old or six months old who are already going towards the truck or going towards the doll. Okay, so that's one line of evidence. I can get you data from vervet monkeys, from rhesus monkeys, from chimpanzees, showing you that their infants within their species exhibit the exact same toy preferences that human infants do. I can get you data from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where on funerary monuments, on, on mausoleums where people are buried, there are depictions, sculpture depictions of children playing and the children are playing using the same type of sex-specific toys. This is 2,500 years ago. I could get you data from pediatrics, from pediatric medicine, whereby little girls who suffer from a, a disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, this is a disorder whereby little girls who suffer from this disorder be, have masculinized behavior. They become masculinized. Well, little girls who have this disorder have a sex reversal of their toy preferences. Their toy preferences become like those of little boys. So bit by bit, if you forgive the, 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 the glory, uh, gory analogy or metaphor, I'm putting the epistemological noose around your neck because I am slowly drowning you in a tsunami of evidence. I got you data from across time periods. I can get you data from across cultures. I can get you data from sub-Saharan Africa, that have nothing to do with Western culture and the little boys and the little girls play with the exact same toys. I can get you data from across species. So, so in other words, 
the data can become so overwhelming in favor of my arguments that it's impossible for you to counter argue. Now, the, the difficulty with the approach that I'm suggesting is, of course, number one, it requires a lot of effort on your part. For you to build that nomological network requires effort. It's a lot easier for me to simply listen to noble prophet Barack Obama telling us that, that you know, whatever he is that we should, you know, follow, and that makes it easier. I just have to hear him, nod in agreement, and we move on. To build a network takes effort. So number one, there's that. Number two, if I am the one who's building you the network to convince you, but you're going la, 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 I don't want to hear it, then no amount of evidence that I can offer you can ever get through to your brain. So as long as we can have the cognitive willingness to build the network, and as long as my audience member is willing to grant me the courtesy to listen to my arguments, then that's how you adjudicate across arguments, and that's how you become, hopefully, a better critical thinker. No, this is really good. Um, I love everything that you said, man. I was taking notes as you were talking. Um, I've heard you share these concepts m multiple times as well. And so here's what I've, I've come to realize. This is all my personal experiences. I'm curious if it's yours as well. We live in an era, and uh, Dave Chappelle coined the phrase, the age of spin. Me and my, my best friend, Francis, we call it all the time, the age of spin, where left is right, right is left, up is down, down is up. And, and what we found the most is that a lot of individuals, they, they, they believe data points based upon their feelings. And I remember when I was talking to Dr. Rob about Dr. Henderson about this, he, he had a better, you know, um, uh, vocabulary to explain these words. But so what happens is let's say to your point, right? If there was an individual who emotionally felt like gender is a social construct that's forced down upon our throats by the western patriarchy right like that individual though they're not saying la 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 to you their minds have been made up upon this belief and that's why i love your book the parasitical mind because it talks about these bad ideas that will literally imprint themselves on the mind and 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 like a parasite is very hard to remove so yeah. so what i've noticed that happens so often today is that People's emotional dispositions are they accept truth when it's closely related to their feeling. Yes. Right. And then any data that corresponds to a truth that goes against their feeling, they're, they're criticizing it. Right. Going back to what I was saying, the neo-Marxist culture that we live in wants to tear down all institutions. Right. So you can you can give all that data and they'll say, well, you know, the studies that I have. Yeah. Point otherwise, right? And so in situations like that, especially in this in this democratized society of information, when people have ideas that go against what you find as strong evidential points, and then they have all their data points that support it, how does an individual come to a rational decision when they're when they're hearing two conflicting data points? Yeah, well, in a sense, you're describing the la-la-la, but instead of them literally putting their fingers in their ear, their emotional system has hijacked their ability to think. So they are, in effect, 100%. doing la-la-la. Uh, look, th there is no magic bullet. It's really, you know, I've had tons of people who, uh, you know, used to hate evolutionary psychology for all sorts of idiotic reasons. 
And, you know, it's taken 20 years for them to come around and say, oh, my God, I can't believe the stupidity I had I had emailed you 20 years ago. I even have colleagues who used to think that, you know, evolutionary psychology should never be used to study economic decision making or consumer behavior and so on. And now they're the ones who are inviting me to the most prestigious talks and venues and so on. So, you know, sometimes I can convince you in five minutes. Sometimes it might take me 50 years. But that's the beauty of science is that it is autocorrective. If hopefully the arguments are ultimately much stronger on my side than yours, if you're an if you're an honest agent, then you will come around. But to your point about you know feelings versus uh, reason and so on, as I'm sure you you remember from the parasitic mind, in chapter two I've I talk about truth versus I mean uh, feelings versus reason, and I argue that it is a false dichotomy to say that you know humans humans are a thinking animal or humans are an emotional a feeling animal. We are both, obviously. The challenge is to know when to activate the particular system, right? That, that's the problem, right? So if I am walking, if I'm taking a shortcut to get home and I decide to walk down a dark alley because it's going to save me 10 minutes of walking and I see four young men loitering, I will now get a fear-based response. My, my heart rate will go up. My blood pressure will go up. Uh, I might even, my, my breathing might become shallower. That, the triggering of that emotional system makes perfect adaptive sense at that point. It might, my body and yours and our, my mind and yours have evolved to react w with that emotional system. It makes evolutionary sense for me to have done so. On the other hand, if I'm trying to do well on a calculus exam and I have an emotional reaction, that's probably going to be contrary to my doing well on the exam. I need to trigger my cognitive system, right? And so in the context of that dichotomy, I argue, for example, that when we're choosing our political leaders, regrettably, too often people have their emotional system that's driving the decision, right? So where, of course, in reality, they should have their cognitive system that's driving such an important decision. So example, if you ask people, why do you love noble prophet Barack Obama, peace be upon him, uh, then you get things like, well, you know, he's tall, he's majestic, he's got a radiant smile, he speaks so eloquently. By the way, every single syllable he says is pure bullshit, but it sounds so goddamn good, right? He sounds, he's got a mellifluous voice. On the other hand, ogre, disgusting, vile Donald Trump, he's disgusting. I revile his voice. He's got mannerisms that are unbecoming of a president. Notice that in each of those two reactions, I didn't utter... I like him or dislike him because of his monetary policy. I like him or dislike him because of his immigration policy. It was all rooted in what is called peripheral cues, cosmetic cues. My emotional system was hijacked, either because I love Obama or because I hate Trump. And of course, that's not how you should be choosing your leaders. And here, you may have seen me do this before. I've got the prop ready. Uh, Imagine that this is, you're smiling because I think, is that because you know where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. Yes, you are. Okay. But some of your re viewers yeah, of might course, not. Please, please go ahead. Don't worry. Don't worry about me. I'm enjoying all of this. <laughs> uh, imagine if this were the cork of a wine bottle. Okay. The, the beauty of being Arabic, being my mother tongue, is that there are all sorts of 
be- beautiful flowery sayings that you know exist in one language that don't exist in another. So there's an Arabic expression which, when translated into English, is getting drunk by smelling the cork of the wine bottle. Right. So I I just took a whiff and look, I'm already getting drunk, which basically means that I am of such weak constituents. You know, my constituency is so weak that I don't need to actually do the heavy lifting of drinking the wine. I just whiff and I'm already drunk. Well, how do you apply that to this context? Well, I didn't have to really do all the heavy lifting of thinking about why I like Barack Obama or not, or why I like Trump or not. I just drunk from their cork. So Obama, my God, what a radiant smile. Trump, he's disgusting. I can't stand him. He's disgusting, right? So I'm getting drunk by the wine, the cork of the wine bottle, right? That's not what should happen when I'm choosing my... uh... So again, there's nothing wrong with having your emotions guide you, but it has to be in the right context. No, I I love that. Yeah, my family's Nigerian um, and from the Yoruba tribe and... Um, the, 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 the language has so many, um, you know, different idioms and different sayings. And, and so I just love when people um, from other countries, you know, will share some of theirs as well, because it, it, it really it really creates this 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 interwoven way of the way that we think. I know I love everything that you said. And, and to me, um, I guess one of the challenges I've had is that, you know, like I said, I do everything in my power to bring men such as yourself on this platform to be able to share your wisdom and insight. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I see that so many other people get drunk off of the cork of the wine bottle um, for these different individuals who are communicating things in a way that makes them feel good. Yeah. Right. But it's intellectually dishonest. So an example that I thought about and I was hearing um, somebody describe this about the problem of a modern debate. Right. And so, like, when you think about, like, the modern debates, it's really not a question of, OK, I want to hear both sides and come to a rational decision why one person's right or one person's wrong. Right. It's that if so and so makes me feel good. Right. Therefore, I believe this person won the debate and that person is true. I think the, the example that I, I heard was about the, um, the Kennedy-Nixon debates, right? And they yeah. supposedly said that, you know, if you were to watch the, the debates, you thought that Kennedy won, right? But if you were listening to the debates, um, they thought that Nixon would have won. So like you said, it's, it's getting drunk off that wine, that cork of the wine bottle. And so I've seen so many people, their, their decision makings of ideas are based upon, like you said, an emotional response that the individual will give you. And as long as that individual has the unfortunate manipulative powers to elicit that strong emotional response in you, everything that they say is gospel, right? And the other individual who cannot elicit an emotional response or, like you said, elicits the, the more disgust response, everything that they say is from the pits of hell. And so that's one of the things I, I, I wish we as a society can fight that because I see so many people, you know, kind of lost in that trance like um, um, a stupor, as you would describe it, where you're simply just believing people because they make you feel good for whatever emotional reason and totally rejecting any ideas from rational arguments because it doesn't feel as good to your emotional sentiments. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Well said. I, I mean, look, and, and of course, as someone who is housed 
I mean, academically in a business school, I'm housed in a, in a, in the, in a marketing department. So I study consumer psychology and psychology of decision-making. You know, I'm, I'm well aware of the techniques, the persuasion techniques that marketers will use that exactly speak to your point, right? I mean, politicians are some of the most adept people at doing that, right? I mean, why is it that every politician suddenly becomes uh, in every single photo with a, with a baby in hand? Right, because that elicits, I'm caring, I'm nurturing, right? And it goes back to the political philosopher Machiavel, right? Who basically argued it doesn't matter if you are honest or not truly. What matters is that the electorate thinks you are why, you know, mm. honest or not, right? And there, and hence mm. the, the term Machiavellianism, right? Uh, I'm trying to uh, manipulate you in any way that I can f to advance my selfish pursuits, right? By the way, from an evolutionary perspective, there's some really interesting dynamics there because that becomes an evolutionary arms race. As I evolve tactics to dupe you, you have to evolve tactics to detect that I am potentially mm. duping you. So it's very much That's like true. how there's an evolutionary arms race between a virus and a host or a parasite and a host when you and I, so for example, uh, I'm slightly veering off track, but hopefully that's okay. Uh, of course. Why is it that people are so adept at self-deception, right? It, it, it's one thing to argue that I might want to manipulate you for my selfish interests, but why is it that we are uncanny in our ability to dupe ourselves? And the answer to that you know, very philosophically profound riddle comes actually from evolutionary psychology. Regrettably, it wasn't yours truly who came up with it. The, the, the gentleman who came up with it is someone, a, a true giant of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. His name is Robert Trivers. And he basically explained the evolution of self-deception. And here's how the argument goes. Remember, I said earlier, there's an evolutionary arms race. I'm trying to dupe you, and you're trying to listen to any cue in what I'm speaking to you to see if my intent is honest or not, right? Mm -hmm. Now, how do I, if I'm trying to dupe you, shut those cues down? I do that by first deceiving myself, right? In other words, if I can mm -hmm. first lie to myself and believe yeah. the lie within myself, when I then try to dupe you, those little micro signatures on my face that might otherwise give a telltale sign that I might be manipulating you, when you're looking closely for them, you won't find them. And of course, as you or your viewers may know, one group of folks are very good at not exuding those cues. They're called psychopaths, right? Yeah. And so one of the reasons why, for example, the FBI won't use a lie detector test on psychopaths is because psychopaths, because they don't suffer from, you know, any remorse or guilt, they're not giving off those autonomic physiological measures of distress if they're lying to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's a perfect demonstration of the power of evolutionary theorizing, right? Because you take a very perplexing problem. Like, why is it that we are so good at lying to ourselves? And it offers with just a few well-placed sentences, a very coherent explanation for the phenomenon. 
That's so powerful. And, 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 and I, as you were talking, I, I thought about the idea of, but then the more naive you are as an individual, right? The more you're, you, you may, or even the, the moral saint, right? The more naive and the moral of the moral saints you are, that can also then hinder you yeah. from being able to realize that other people are not as naive and as, you know, as self-righteous as you are. So that can potentially, you know, prevent you from being able to see these lies in individuals, you know? And I think that was a really powerful point. I thought that was fantastic. I literally was just writing all these notes down. Yeah, just to um, speak, so, forgive me for just be, forgive please. me for interrupting you. And then you can go on uh, because I don't want to lose the, the moment. Uh, speaking about sort of that, so I would, what you just described as, you know, naivete and so on, in, in, in my worldview, I call it the purity bubble. And I discussed mm. this very briefly in, in chapter one of the parasitic mind, when I'm talking about what are the two life ideals that guide my life. And I say it's truth and freedom. And, and because I am so dogged in, you know, in always being truthful and being, you know, pathologically honest. So I exist in this purity bubble where oftentimes I ascribe the same purity to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get very disappointed because yeah. then you never meet my standards of purity. And I remember my mother once in, in, in one of her incredibly, you know, wise moments. I, I can't remember how old I must've been, but I, I mean, I, I was pretty young, maybe 12, 13, 14. And she looked at me, she goes, God, it will do you really well. I mean, in Arabic, I'm translating. God, it will do you really well to learn that the world doesn't abide to your purity bubble. And, and so mm. that speaks exactly to what you just said. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, That's sorry, so I interrupted what, you. Take it away. Uh, what, what, what is that sentence in Arabic? Well, it, I mean, it, it's basic. It, to be to be pure is tahir. Do you speak? You don't speak Arabic. I don't, but you know, my my family is obviously Hafiz. One of memorizes the Quran. Yeah. A lot of my family exactly. Um, Very good. Is, well, we would say, by the way, Hafiz. We wouldn't. Yeah, we Hafiz. Wouldn't, yeah, we, we wouldn't say Hafiz. That's exactly. a pastor that David calls me all the time. He calls me Hafiz. And so in, in, in Yoruba culture, they take these Arabic names. Because, you know, Yoruba, a lot of them are Arabic um, as well. So they take these Arabic names and they add like a Yoruba twist to it. So they took that Hafiz, you know, you know, obviously the famous Persian poet and a lot of different members in, in the Muslim community. And they added the Hafiz to it. And that's exactly. so it's like the Yoruba um, this description of it. It, well, generally, I mean, so, it, you know, I don't remember the exact words she used, but roughly speaking, so that means basically uh, the people are not as pure as you are. And and yeah. the, the quicker you, you align that and you understand that, the, the better that, you know, you'll live your life. And, you know, it's funny because notwithstanding that I realize that, of course, I mean, in the abstract, I realize that not everybody is as honest as, you know, I might be and so on. I still get very disappointed when, you know, yeah. so for example, if I have a student and I have a very exacting code of how often you should check the data before, you know, so I always joke that one of the most stressful 
parts of my life as an author is when I received the galley proofs. The galley proofs is the final version of the book that you have to go one last time. Now, for most authors, that would be a celebratory event because you're, yeah. you're almost at the finish line. For me, I'm almost jumping off a, a building because I'm so stressed out. What if I don't pick up the comma that is in the wrong place? Or what if there is a typo? Or what if there was... And so I, you know, I'm rechecking and rechecking and I'm basically... You know, my wife will come into the room and say, I think you've checked the damn book enough times. Can we you know, move <laughs> on? Because like she'll see me. I'm so, I have such anguish. So notwithstanding that I realized that my mother's prescription many years ago holds true, you are what you are. The leopard has his spots. I'm, I'm regrettably often disappointed by people's dishonesty and malice and callousness and so on. No, I feel I feel the same exact way. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I built this, me and my um, one of my friends built this platform years ago was to be able to help men. Uh, we realize in today's society, a lot of men don't have the tools, resources possible, you know, to be successful. A lot of talk of toxic masculinity, you know, the future is female and things along those lines. So we want to create a healthier culture of men in today's society. And, and we've and we've used our platform to do that very such thing. But what I've also noticed is that what has also gone on is that, you know, there has been individuals, bad actors, in my opinion, who also are entering into the space of helping men. And these bad actors are, in my opinion, preying on a lot of the insecurities and pain points that men are dealing with in order to, to in my opinion, you know, facilitate this fear response, which makes them addicted to the content, like the CNN fear Donald Trump model, um, as well as other things. And so one of the things I've noticed that they do quite often is they use evolution. They use like evolutionary psychology and biology to kind of demonize female mating preferences yeah. and idealize male mating preferences and that fuels a lot of anger and animosity in men. So, for example, like, you know, the common thing where, you know, women would want a partner who's taller than them. Right. And they will use statistics like that to say, you know, women are shallow. They're this, that and the third. You know, they don't like tall, short guys. They and so so I've seen these individuals using, like you said, you, the, the work that I believe is 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 the pure noble work that you and a lot of my 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 role models do and they and they're kind of abusing it to kind of fuel the anger and the divide between men and women today and so the question i would i would have for you is have you noticed individuals who are using some of these these statistics and data more as a weapon to create an unhealthier divide instead of using the data for what it should be as a tool to help us better relate to one another. Have you personally noticed this throughout the internet and, and as well? So I, I don't know what the term is. Uh, the term is, uh, I don't know if it, I don't think it's bro culture, but th there is some term that escapes me where uh, a bunch of guys were using evolutionary psychology principles to write sort of dating manuals. Is that, do you know what I'm talking about? I, uh, I can't remember the. Yeah, go ahead. Was it was it pickup? 
It's maybe pickup stuff like that, right? So, so you take yeah. So there's pickup. There's like red pill. There's stuff like that. Is exactly. it like you know? I think that's what you're describing. And, and I guess uh, most recently, and I I only discovered him recently because a whole bunch of people tagged me with his name, so I had to go look up who he was. Uh, I guess Andrew Tate would be an example, maybe of someone who you're thinking about that you know is fueling kind of. Uh, uh, animosity between the sexes. Yeah, I, or... I would I would put Andrew in a different category okay. um, personally, um, but and but there is individuals. Like I'll put Andrew in a separate category, but there are other other individuals who they they profess themselves to be experts in evolutionary psychology, biology. They they like they will quote people like you, right? Right. And so they will use like direct statistics and stuff like that and kind of skew the data from yeah. different scholarly journal to be able to reinforce a lot of their worldviews. So look, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly who you might be talking about, but I, I get the general uh, gist of your question. Yeah. Look, the there is a distinction between the pursuit of knowledge for the sake of understanding human nature and then how you apply that knowledge, right? So for example, yes. uh, physics has allowed us to understand uh, atomic particles and that led us to drop two bombs in Japan to end World War II, right? Now you can't blame the physicists who developed the original work in understanding uh, you know, the atom uh, to the downstream negative consequences of building weaponry, right? So, so the analogy here is of course that you can take perfectly valid, pure knowledge, scientific knowledge about human nature and misuse it for all sorts of nefarious uh, reasons, right? And, and I think the guys that you're talking about would fit under that camp. But I think more generally, the, the sort of the theoretical uh, point that I would make is that it is really wrong to, evolutionarily speaking, to pit men and women against each other, kind of locked in competition. If, if you're going to talk about competition, Evolutionarily speaking, competition is much more likely to happen intrasexually, meaning male against male and female against female. So, so both men and women can be violently competitive, but usually they are competitive within their own sex, right? So it's much less likely to be with... Now, of course, things like domestic violence is intersexual right and usually by the way and that's one of the first places that i was when i was first exposed to evolutionary psychology it was during a my first uh, semester as a doctoral student at, at cornell uh where i was taking an advanced social psychology course so this wasn't an evolutionary psychology course it was a social psychology course and uh, professor dennis regan uh, about halfway through the semester he assigned a book called homicide uh, which is a book written by Margot uh, Wilson and Martin Daly, a husband and wife team, who are two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology. And in the book, they basically explain patterns of criminality using an evolutionary lens, one of which is domestic violence. And the idea is that domestic violence happens in unbelievably predictable fashions. It's usually almost always because of one reason, either suspected or realized infidelity. And whether this is happening in 1950s Detroit or happening 2000 years ago in ancient Greece or happening in the Yanomomo tribe in Amazon, nothing changes across time, across place, across culture. It's always because of this issue. Now, of course, the evolutionary reason is because uh, there's nothing more threatening to a man's 
evolutionary interest than paternity uncertainty. We are a biparental species. Men, men are super dads in the animal kingdom, men meaning human males. While we still invest less than human females, we do invest more than almost any other male in any other species. And therefore, because we are a biparental species, it makes, per, it makes sense that we've evolved the emotional, the cognitive, and the behavioral systems to try to thwart threats to of paternity uncertainty, right? And so while it's it's true that there are cases where there is intersexual violence, violence and competition across the sexes, much of the competitive juices that flow, evolutionary speaking, happen within sex. So this idea that, you know, here's the bro who's coming to tell you how to dupe women and so on, that, that's really not the optimal mating strategy because while women do appreciate uh, the bad boy, uh, they also appreciate kindness. They also appreciate uh, intelligence. They also appreciate honesty. And by the way, the premium on a bad boy is really very life life stage specific, meaning that many uh, young women will, will love a bad boy when they're 18 and 19 and will abhor a bad boy when they're 35. So, so for all sorts of reasons, uh, I, I take your point that a lot of these evolutionary principles are, are mispackaged and misapplied. But... That's true in any science, right? You can also, as I said in physics, take a, a beautiful theory and then drop bombs and kill hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. So I'm going to try to put it in layman's terms. And obviously, you probably have better, more intelligent scientific ways of describing this. So what, what I've realized is when I, when I sit down with the experts such as yourselves, you guys are more fascinated with the why than necessarily the what. Right. So what I mean by that is let's take like a, like a data point. Right. And a simple data point would be, you know, in women, women receive paternity in majority of cases a paternity. I'm sorry. Women receive custody majority of cases in the custody courts. Right. Like so. That's the what. That's what is going on. And you can extrapolate the data from whatever course to be able to justify that exact percentage number. But the but the the scholars, the academics, they're concerned with why, right? Why are these things happening, right? So if all these different statistics and data from evolutionary psychology, from human mating, they want to know why these things are taking place to be able to extract extrapolate, you know, the the next logical thing that can that can exist. And so what I've seen is that so many people will use the what to to create the wrong why, yes. right? So they'll say, okay, like. You know, um, you know, majority of women want higher earning men because women today are shallow gold diggers, right? Like they, they will take the what, yeah. right? The data point and extrapolate the wrong why. And so one of the things I was, I, I wish more people could do, like you said, because I view the, 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 the practice as a pure noble practice, like, as like physics, like, 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 like mathematics and statistics, right? But I wish people could be able to have better, you know, be able to extrapolate the data a lot wiser because these bad actors take these statistics, right? And then they will use it to like to kind of demonize the opposing gender instead of really understanding why these events take place. Yes. Uh, so I will slightly rephrase what you said, although you, you've given me a great Please do. Pad. That's what I wanted you to do. <laughs> so the the what and the why the the this the scientific and the philosophy of science way of describing that and it's 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 
it's a fundamental explanation of what evolutionary theory is. And here we go. The, the scientific phenomena could be studied at two levels of analyses. They could be studied at what's called the proximate level, or they could be studied at the ultimate level. The proximate level answers the what and the how question. It's a mechanistic explanation of the phenomenon in question. Much of science operates at the proximate level. So it's not, it's, so it's not that academics operate at the why level, whereas lay people operate at the, at the what level. Scientists themselves, most Nobel Prizes have been won at the what level, explaining how something works, the what and the how. The, the why is the Darwinian why. The ultimate explanation is why did the mechanism evolve to be of that form, right? Now, to fully understand the phenomenon, you need to explain both levels. You need to explain the what and how, and you need to explain the ultimate Darwinian why. Now, this might sound intuitively, it makes sense, but I think if I give a concrete example, then I think your listeners and viewers will hopefully fully understand it. I love it. So take, for example, pregnancy sickness, okay? Pregnancy sickness, which usually people call it colloquially a morning sickness, but some women don't get it in the morning, so that's why the more general term is pregnancy sickness, is something that happens in astonishingly predictable ways that you could set your, your alarm clock to it. It happens during the first trimester of, of your gestation when, when you have child at exactly a particular time and it ends at a particular time. Now, there are a million how and what proximate questions you could ask about pregnancy sickness if you're a scientist. You could say, uh, how do fluctuating hormonal levels affect the severity of pregnancy sickness, right? I just asked the how question. What are certain smells that trigger pregnancy sickness? That was a what? And I can, I can generate now for you another 73 million how and what question, all of which are valid and people have published all sorts of papers. There is one question that's missing. That's the ultimate Darwinian why. Why has this mechanism evolved? What evolutionary solution does that mechanism seek to address? And here is where you get that aha moment. Here is where you see, should I call you Hafiz or Hafiz? Which do you prefer? Do I? Uh, you could, you could, you, whichever one, uh, Hafiz would be good. Hafiz, okay. Uh, and if you don't mind me calling you by your first name. So Hafiz, this is where your listeners and viewers hopefully will get that epiphany moment and go, oh my God, evolutionary theory is it. The ultimate Darwinian why of pregnancy sickness is as follows. During that period where pregnancy sickness starts and ends during the first trimester is a period called organogenesis. Organogenesis is the start of, right? Just like Genesis in the Bible, right? It's the start of organogenesis. It's when the organs are forming in utero. During that developmental stage, it is uniquely important that the mother-to-be does not ingest certain teratogens, foodborne pathogens, that could wreak havoc 
to that developmental mechanism. Therefore, she develops an aversion for certain foods that are high load of that stuff. She develops a attraction to foods that serve as anti so, for example, pickles. You always hear of the pregnant woman who loves pickle. Well, even though she didn't love pickles before she was pregnant, she has a deep urge to get a pickle. Well, because pickles serve as kind of antimicrobial property, right? Also, women end up throwing up during, or, uh, during uh, pregnancy sickness. Well, that serves as the ultimate insurance policy that if you did happen to ingest something, well, now it's going to be expelled. It also turns out that women who experience more pregnancy sickness rather than less end up having a more successful, you know, uh, trajectory. They're less likely to have a miscarriage, all of which point to the fact that pregnancy sickness has evolved as a Darwinian adaptation to these threats during organogenesis. Now, you might yeah, say, okay, good. well, that, wow, that's gorgeous, but who cares? What's the practical application to this? Okay, and I'm going to hit you with it. When you go see your OBGYN as a, uh, are we allowed on your show to say as a pregnant woman, or should I say a preg- pregnant um, uh, person or I, pregnant? I don't, I don't want you to get canceled. Use it at your own risk. Use it at your own risk. Okay. If you are a uterus haver who is a pregnant person, then you go see your uh, uh, gynecologist and what does he or she or they uh, prescribe? They give you a pill that attenuates your pregnancy symptoms, they, it, uh, pregnancy sickness symptoms. It reduces them. Now, that might be a good thing. If tomorrow I have an exam or I have a presentation I don't want to be running to the bathroom every four seconds throwing up. So while at the proximate level, it might help me because I need to sit through the exam without going to throw up every four seconds, in a ultimate Darwinian sense, that gynecologist is doing the perfectly incorrect thing for you because that uh, unpleasant set of symptoms exists to protect your offspring, okay? Yeah. So now I've lectured about this, you know, in very uh, uh, prestigious venues. Let's say I'm, you know, I, the, the case I'm thinking of at, at UC Irvine when I was a, a visiting professor there for a few years, uh, one of the tracks of MBA students that I was uh, teaching, they all came from a health care uh, Many of them came from a healthcare background. So many of them were physicians and surgeons and psychiatrists and so on. So they would come up to me and say, hey, Dr. Saad, you know, I'm a gynecologist. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a this, that. We never learned that in medical school. Wow. Now, why was that? Mm. Because they learned only the proximate causes of medical illness. They're mechanics. And I don't mean that pejoratively. We need them, and it's a very noble yeah, no profession. Doubt. But they are mechanics instead of of a car of the human body. So they come and intervene and fix mm. the carburetor. They never ask the ultimate Darwinian question, why is the body built that way? And so one of my yeah. colleagues who's been on my show, and I would highly recommend you try to invite him on your show 
if you can, uh, one of the the pioneer of evolutionary medicine is a guy who, so in the same way that I try to Darwinize the business school, to Darwinize the behavioral sciences, he's been trying for all his career to Darwinize the medical school. Now you would think that, oh, medical school students, oh, it sounds sciencey. They know evolution. They don't because they only mm. operate at the how and the what. Now imagine if you can arm them with the how, the what, and the why, now yeah. we've got some seriously well-trained physicians. And, and what was your, um, 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 what was his name? Oh, right. Uh, Randy Nesse, N-E-S-S-E. No, sounds good. No, this, that, that, that was amazing. The, the explanation that you gave was phenomenal. I, I loved every, every last bit of it. And there's, there's two things I wanted to talk to you about, and I'm, and I'm very curious about your perspective of it because I deal with a lot of young adults, and that's why I'm so excited about having you on the show because they're being exposed to your content. Hopefully, they subscribe to your channel, purchase all your books, and, and et cetera. But I deal with a lot of young adults who they're, they're, they're only in the, you call it the proximal? Was that the correct word? Proximate. 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 I'm sorry. The, 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 studying from the proximate standpoint. And so, one of the one of the challenges that I've seen is that there's a lot of issues when it comes to male female interaction in the modern societies. A lot of challenges, obviously, all the different nuances, social media, you know, you know, obviously, COVID happened and all this, that, and the third. So there's a lot of like frustration about just really how to date and create healthy relationships in the 21st century. And so a lot of young adults, um, they look at, like I said, they look at the, the proximate information, look at the what, and they see things that may potentially discourage them from, from pursuing, you know, meaningful relationships because they will say, well, I'm not tall enough. I'm not the prototypical bad boy. I don't make this much. And they have these, they make these caricatures of women based upon these broad generalizations from bits and pieces of evolutionary biology, you know, um, psychology and, and um, statistics to be able to say, well, I'm not that there's no chance of me having this relationship. Yes. Um, in your personal opinion, what would be some of the, the advice you would give individuals who are, let's say, looking at some of the data and not fully understanding it, and but now feeling discouraged from entering the mating market and the dating market because they personally feel as though they're not, they don't add up. Yeah, great. And actually, I I discuss exactly that question in my next book, in the the Happiness and Good Life book. Uh, I love uh, it. Uh, uh, get ready, fasten your seatbelts. Here's your here's your answer. Uh, I'm gonna use some this. fancy scientific language, and then I'll break it down. So I argue. I love it. That's what I'm here I, for. I argue that mate choice is a compensatory process. What does that mean? Let's suppose you were to say, let's suppose for a second I'm a woman now, and I say I will never date a guy who is under six feet tall. Okay, that's a non-compensatory process. Why? Because that means if I am five foot ten. I could never compensate for that shortcoming, right? But now here's the good news, listeners of Hafiz. Mate choice is not 
non-compensatory. It is compensatory, which means what? It means that I can compensate in, in one shortcoming, if you forgive the pun using height as the example, by, by scoring very highly on other qualities. In other words, both men and women, I mean, depending if it's for short-term mating or long-term mating, so that's slightly complicated story. But for most of us, the choice of a mate is a choice of a bundle of attributes, right? So what am I looking at? If I'm a woman, yes, I might look at your physique. I might look if you've got a thin waist. I might look if you've got broad shoulders. I might look if you have a nice voice. I might look that. And you're right, by the way, what you said earlier, what's more important to women than height is simply that you be taller than them, right? So if if, if they're five, if they're six one, they need someone who is six two and up. But if you're five one, right? I mean, guess what? Lionel Messi is short. He's got a really beautiful wife who happens to be short of him. Now, he also happens to be Lionel Messi, which speaks to my point, which is he overcame the fact that he's not six foot two, right? Because if, if mate choice were a non-compensatory process and women chose based on height, then they'd be a few tall guys that are mating with everybody and the rest of the men would be twiddling their thumbs in sexual frustration. That's not what happens, right? And that's good news because it says what? Your height you can't change, but your ambition you can change. Not playing video games for eight hours in your basement while you let go of personal hygiene, you can change. Looking presentable, you could change. Improving yourself and having a better vocabulary and being better educated, you can change. So there is a whole slew of attributes that both, now some you can't change. If I'm looking for a woman with a certain body type, I mean, yes, you could maybe lose weight or, 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 or get, you know, Brazilian plastic surgery to have a bigger butt and so on. But, but even men who you might think are more prone to look at the physical attributes of a woman are not only looking at that, right? I also care about kindness. I also care about a woman who shares my life values. And so there is a, so so it is wrong to be frustrated if you're sitting in your basement wondering when is my you know, soulmate going to come around to say, well, I'm not tall enough or I'm not good looking. Yes, it'll be great if we were all neurosurgeons and over six foot one and had six uh, ab, six pack, ab, you know, six ab, pack, what is it? Six ab packs, yeah. Six pack abs. Thank you. Uh, but the reality is most people are not, and yet they do end up finding a beautiful person and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, a tall man, but you should see my wife, right? Well, and what I mean by that is she's, she's very beautiful and, and lovely and so on. Well, because I made up for not being six foot two by all sorts of hopefully other. I'm, I'm hopefully, I've got interesting things to say. I'm well-read, I have a good position in life, I'm funny, it doesn't hurt to have the green eyes that I have. Uh, she always mm -hmm. joked that she married me for my green eyes and I didn't pass on the green eyes to our children, so I have failed her. <laughs> so there you go. But my point is that uh, it really is a very empowering message. And I don't share that message just to make people feel good, but I'm not telling the truth. As you know, 
I do care about the truth very deeply. And so I don't just say that to make people feel good. Look, some of us are better looking than others, and there's nothing you can do about the morphology of your face. But guess what? You probably know this, Hafiz. Two years ago, I weighed 86 pounds more than I do today. Now, mm -hmm. I was already happily married, and I wasn't in the mating market, but I did change a bit. Now, I used to be historically very thin. I was a very competitive soccer player. Uh, I had the eight pack, never mind the six pack. And then I saw the picture. I, I see the picture. picture. Thank you. You have proof. But then life caught up and I became the weight of a NFL middle linebacker. And I lacked six inches that allowed them to carry that <laughs> weight. And so my physician yeah. would say to me, you have to lose weight. You have to lose weight. And guess what? Uh, every single day, I have to face 73 different decisions that either make me go right or left. I have to exercise. I have to eat properly. And then fast forward two years later, I may not have the eight pack of when I was 20, but I am very svelte and thin. So for most things that make us attractive on the mating market, not all, but for most, we are agents of change. We can improve on them, right? I'll give you one quick example. Most people can within, if I don't remember the exact number, but within a flash of a second can very quickly pigeonhole you and, and correctly, accurately in terms of your social status, in terms of your occupational prestige, in terms of your educational level. I just have to hear a few words and I can already know. Well, guess what? Read. If you look around in my in my in my study right now, I am overflowing with books. One of the things that st stresses me the most, Hafiz, in life, is when I'm sitting on my elliptical, which is also in my study, and I look at all the books in my personal library that I've yet to read. I realize how little I know of all the things <laughs> that I could know. So even though objectively you might say I might know a lot more than most people, I'm, I actually take the opposite position, the more humble position, which is I know shit. There is so much written out there. I know a minuscule and I want to know it all. I want it all to go into my brain and therefore I'm a voracious reader. I don't have to read today. I've reached the, the echelon of life. I could sit back and watch nonsense on TV all day and get fat, but I always want to improve. So to your listeners, there is always a road by which we can go from A to B, where B places us in a much better place in the mating market. So don't lose hope, do the work, and good things will happen. I absolutely love everything that you said. That was such a powerful message. Thank you so much. As always, you know, I'm taking a ton of notes. Um, so one of the things to me, um, you know, men such as yourself, you know, Dr. Peterson, uh, what, I, what I admire is not just is the intellectual prowess, but I also admire the the success you build in your field and reputation. But also the last thing I love the most is, is your family. Um, you know, the children that you have, the wife that you have, because it's because to me, it's one thing to be it's one thing to make money. Right. Another thing to make money and to be respected by your peers, peers and be very good at what you do ethically. Right. And then the last thing is to be able to then have a healthy, sustainable family while doing those other two things. To me, that's what makes you a Hall of Fame man, in my personal opinion. Thank you. And so I, I, I love everything about your family. 
But one of the things that unfortunately I'm seeing a lot in today's society is I'm seeing this attack on the family. And then you have a lot of these bad actors, a lot of these individuals who are really trying to discourage men from marriage and family by communicating to men that marriage is not a good idea for men today. And so for, for individuals who who are wondering, you know, not only from an evolutionary standpoint, but also from a from a from a, an individual like you who's telling the truth, you know, what are your thoughts when people are communicating, you know, that marriage is not a good idea for men today? What what would you say to individuals who might say something like that? Yeah, great, great question. Look, in 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 the forthcoming book where you know the whole book is about happiness and the good life, I talk about the data, the scientific studies that you know that let's say link uh, happiness to marriage and so on, and the general uh, you know, bottom line is that uh, marriage does add some happiness points to people. Marriage does add longevity in terms of life expectancy to people. Uh, that said, I also recognize that there are individual differences across people, right? So I, you know, I have a sibling who just wasn't built for marriage for all sorts of reasons. I, I have three siblings, two brothers and a sister, and and this one particular sibling uh you know is for for all sorts of reasons uh could be the random combination of genes that make make him who he is uh doesn't have the right set of attributes nor the interest to be married so i don't want people to walk away thinking that there is a singular template to happiness and it's through marriage and children although i would argue that you know given that we are a biparental species uh we've evolved to a, you know pair bond with long-term partners, right? I mean, uh, you know, the game of life is made up of two steps. I have to survive, but I also have to reproduce, right? I mean, if I don't reproduce, my genes don't get extended. And to the extent that we are a biparental species that has to invest heavily in our offspring, it makes sense that that happens within the context of a monogamous union. Now, of course, life is complicated. We also, if we're gonna link it to evolutionary theory, we also have to, if we're going to be honest, realize that we have also evolved to be pulled by the stray, stray instinct, right? In other words, if you look throughout all of recorded cultures in human history, about 85% of cultures uh, have affordances for polygyny. Polygyny meaning one man with multiple women. Now, even religions, Islam, Mormons, right? And of course, certainly in Africa, we could I could list you, you know, a million different tribes that it is institutionalized to have polygyny. So across all cultures and recorded history, about 85% of cultures uh, allow for polygyny to take place. Most of the other cultures are monogamous and way less than 0. 0.00 something percent is polyandry. Polyandry is where you have one woman shared by multiple men. The most famous example of which is called Tibetan polyandry. It's very rare for obvious reasons. It doesn't make evolutionary sense for a mating system to evolve where multiple may, may men share access to one woman because then you don't know who the father is. So that's why even when in the case of Tibetan polyandry, it's called fraternal Tibetan polyandry. The men who are sharing that one woman are actually brothers. So if I don't impregnate her, at least the next best thing happens, which is one of my brothers impregnated her, therefore he shares some of the genes with me, okay? But all this to say, again, 
in the pers- in the in the in the service of always being truthful and not being just as you know feel good self help guy. It's not that it is absolutely unequivocal that the only road to happiness is through marriage, but it is absolutely clear that the data suggests that you are much more likely to live a fulfilled, happy life, let alone live a longer life if you are happily married. Now, I can tell you to add to that, I can tell, now, and by the way, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm about as much of a committed family man as you can think, and it's not as though I don't see a woman over there and I go, God damn, you know, my, my male brain doesn't get triggered. But we also evolved a moral conscience, we also evolved a moral calculus, right? At any given point in a day, your Darwinian pulls are pulling you in different directions. I want to maintain a svelte body, but that ice cream in the fridge is calling me. Hey, come. I want you, God. I want you. And I have to make the right decision. So it is perfectly okay to recognize that people have a drive to stray. Now, whether you succumb to that drive or not depends on your personality and your moral compass. But I'll just say one last thing, and then I'll turn it back to you. Earlier, you said, you know, you, you, you know, I, I love that you, uh, you said some beautiful words about my family. I just a few days ago, I think maybe last week, I put out a a short uh, clip on my on my uh, podcast on my show. Uh, I think I called it "Life Lessons About Good Parenting" or something like that. One of the lessons that I talked about is the following, which I'll share. It speaks actually to the fact that my greatest sense of pride doesn't come from illustrious fellow prestigious professors being proud of my work. It comes from what I'm about to tell you. So I gave a talk uh, last year at Hillsdale College at an event organized by Hillsdale College. It was in Naples, Florida. Very, very big venue, probably a thousand people in the audience, all, you know, prestigious people and wealthy people and so on. And, you know, you know, I had real command of this. I'm giving this talk. People are really responding to it. Then people. And as I walked down, I didn't I didn't see all the people. I only saw that my family was sitting in the front row. And as I walked up to them and, you know, people are you know lining up to whatever to shake my hand and so on. You know, my daughter kind of hugs me and says, Daddy, I'm so proud of you. And that sentence, you can bottle that versus all the other wonderful accolades that I've received, and they wouldn't amount. And not that I don't appreciate them. I, I, I'm, I'm very honored and humbled by everybody's love. But that moment when your little daughter looks at you and says, I'm so proud of you, you're like, I think... I think I'm doing pretty, I'm doing well in life. I think I'm doing okay. So I think there is something unique, magical, transcendental about building a a wonderful family. And so to those who seek it, hopefully you will find your soulmate to build that magical home. No, I, I, I love it. Um, you know, um, very similar to you. I, you know, I, I love how meticulous you are with your advice because, you know, never... Do we want to prescribe one set of behavior for the 8 billion human beings on this planet? Exactly. You know, um, so neither you nor I are prescribing everybody live off of a singular set of principles. But what we do want to provide 
like you said, from not only our anecdotal experiences, but also from, you know, the data from, you know, the, the longest human history has been recorded of the benefits of each individual practice, whether it's family, community, marriage, children, you know, um, and all those things to the enrichment of the human life. And so to me, the biggest thing is I always want people to be able to have all the information. You know, I want them to have all the information, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to be able to better suit their lives. And I think this conversation is coming full circle. It all starts with critical thinking. Yeah. Right? It all starts with the ability to be able to hear a plethora of information and resources and to be able to use a scientific method to be able to differentiate the good information from the bad information because you know, this episode, I mean, I can, I've been taking so many notes, you know, I feel like I got to pay you for like a, a, a lecture, you know, um, because I've been blessed by all that you, you've shared because um, all these things are things I want to apply to my life and I want to become a better individual as well. And so in closing, your book comes out in July, correct? That exactly. July 25th. So let's talk about that so I want to I want to do some things to be able to make sure that everyone gets their hands on that book. So I'm I'm very excited about it's ready potentially- for pre-order. By the way, yeah, sorry to engage in, in shameless plugging. Uh, if people are excited to get it, and by the way, for those of you who don't know whether pre-ordering is important or not, it actually is very important because here's how it works: if if let's say you pre-order the book now, the first week when the book comes out, let's say. 10,000 people have pre-ordered it. That doesn't count as sales until the first week that it's released when all those pre-orders come in. Now, why is that so important? Because when you're, when you're calculating the best seller lists, then you've got this massive slew of unrealized orders that now come in. Now, and why is being bestseller important because then it becomes like an avalanche, right? Yeah. It's a domino effect. Once you get on the bestseller, more and more people will be able to know about that book. So please, if you, if any of the stuff that I've talked about resonates with you, please go to Amazon and pre-order it. It really does matter. I guarantee you, I'll send you a text confirming this. After we're done with this episode, I'm going to go ahead and pre-order the oh, book, Oh, you're guys. very kind. Um, no, I think, you know, in today's era... I, I'm passionate about one of two things, and I'm trying to work on the latter. The first thing is rejecting bad ideas. And that's why I love your book, The Parasitical, um, Parasitical Mind. I just loved it because there's so many bad ideas that are corroding the, the minds of especially young adults, impressionable adults today. But more than just simply rejecting bad ideas, I, I'm about celebrating the good ideas and celebrating the, 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 the thoughtful, the honest, the integral people who are communicating these good ideas, men such as yourself. And so, man, it's been such an amazing privilege and, and, and a blessing to be able to have you here um, and to be able to continue to and, and point people to your platform because we just need more good ideas um, in today's society. So in closing, what would you say is the best book you've ever read to shape your mind? And what would be the last, the, 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 the most important message you want individuals to gain from this episode? Uh, from, okay. So let me address the, the book. It's, it's tough given how much reading I've done. It's tough to say what's the, the most important, you know, the most influential. It's hard not to say th things like 
the book Homicide because that was the introduction to evolutionary psychology. So if only from the perspective of, you know, what was the catalyst that, that then shaped the rest of my academic career, it would be Homicide. Of course, if I went earlier, Origin of Species by Charles Darwin would be one. Uh, from the perspective of the parasitic mind, there is a book that I read uh, probably 20 years ago called Higher Superstition. Uh, the, the, the left's quarrel with academia, or I, I can't remember the subtitle, but it's called Higher Superstition. It's uh, Paul Gross and Levitt. One was a biologist, one was a mathematician, and they were pointing to some of these dreadful ideas that were springing up in academia 20 years ago. And, and I, at that time, I was a young professor, and I was already starting to see some of those ideas spawning everywhere. And so I remember I read that, and I said, oh, my God, I really relate to that book. So higher superstition would be another one. Uh, another one that I think from an uh, evolutionary perspective would be good. It's someone that you mentioned earlier, Dr. David Buss. His book, The Evolution of Desire, was a, a great book to, to, to read. Uh, you know, at the book. time, you know, exactly. Evolutionary psychology was just forging, uh, you know, as, as a fundamental discipline in behavioral sciences. I read that and I said, oh, holy moly. By the way, for those of you who don't know, I mean, David Buss and I are very good friends. He wrote the foreword to one of my books, The Consuming Instinct. So wow, that, awesome. that, that answers uh, the, the book question. What do I think that people should take away from, uh, from today's episode? Well, I mean, we talked about so many really interesting and profound things. I think uh, be honest, be truthful, be intellectually curious. What differentiates us from other species is we've got the, the gift of the prefrontal cortex that allows us to hold these incredible conversations. You and I would not have known each other. Our paths would never have crossed were it not for the fact that we've created these platforms that allows people to connect. So life is a playground, as I explained in my forthcoming book. Uh, always undertake initiatives seriously, but always have a twinkle in your eye, realizing that a playful, inquisitive, open spirit will really get you far in life. Even when I pursue my science, which is a very serious pursuit, I do it with the awe of a young child. Because what is science? Science is about solving puzzles, right? So in the same way that you can get together with your child to solve a 500-piece puzzle, but that's what science is, right? There's a bunch of variables out there, and I'm trying to see which one predicts which other one. So I'm just playing. It just happens that I'm playing in the intellectual realm. So be happy. Life is beautiful. Once in a while, we're thrown some really nasty things. I went through the Lebanese Civil War. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, and yet here I am talking to the lovely and delightful Hafiz. Go out there and enjoy life. Thank you so much. And where can the people find you who, who, who want to support more of your work? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, so on, on Twitter, at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. -A -A uh, I also have a public f Facebook page, uh, you know, similar. I don't remember the exact uh, handle. I'm also on Instagram. But perhaps most importantly, if you like, you know, the content that I'm talking about, I have a show both on YouTube and on all the podcast platforms called uh, The Sad Truth, where I do 
like we are doing here uh, conversations, but I also do little bits. It could be two minutes. It could be 30 seconds. It could be a lecture, all kinds of content. Go subscribe and enjoy. I love it, guys. You know how we get down here. Please, please, please be sure to subscribe to Dr. Saad's YouTube channel. Follow him on all platforms and his up-and-coming book that's released in July. And one more time, what's the title, Dr. Saad? It's the sad, the sad, S-A-A-D, the sad truth about happiness. The sad truth about happiness, guys, please be sure to pre-order that book. It's going to definitely help out a lot for those bestseller sales. So we got to get Dr. Sodom's bestseller list. Thank you guys so much for your time. My name is Hafiz, and I'm joined by Godside. Cheers. Hey, thank you guys so much. You guys take care.